All right, well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here with us today and uh, continue to celebrate in the Christmas season. If you are in first through fifth grade, you can head to Kidmo. Um, and if you're a Kidmo volunteer, please do the same. <laughs> that could be interesting. Um, and we are thankful for everyone who's lighting a candle and for the Tannis family for doing that for us today. That was my fault. I told them to go talk before. The, I forgot I made a video. So um, anyways, um, we had a great time at our combined churches youth event last night. Uh, we got together with four other churches and um, we just had a good time. So we have some pictures and stuff on our, our Facebook page. Um, and then we're going to post a video of the event later um, after we make it. But uh, thank you, parents, and everyone who participated in that. Um, I, it was such a win because kids had fun. We got to see a lot of different people we didn't know. Um, and also, there are churches that I've had the opportunity to build relationships with for the last several years. And I love those uh, leaders and the people in their churches as well as our own. And um, so it was just a win to bring the body of Christ together because that's the way Jesus intended uh, was for us to be one church. Uh, that doesn't mean that we agree on everything or we do everything the same way or that we even interpret all of Scripture the same. But we love Jesus and we know that he is our Savior and we have an, an opportunity to do life together. So I'm looking, for more looking forward to more opportunities that we can do that. Um, also, thank you for everyone who has signed up for our Christmas giving project. Uh, I believe everything has been signed up for except we have three new items um, that if you haven't um, and you would like to participate, you can. Uh, so we're getting three bikes, and we didn't have three helmets on there. So we've decided we ought to get three helmets too. So there are three kids' helmets that are now on the sign-up list, and you can access that either through um, the Uversion app if you're following along the sermon on Uversion. Um, I, actually, you know what? I didn't put it in there today because um, I didn't realize we, we had added some things. But um, you can go out to our... Uh, tablets that are in the, the iPads that are in the foyer, and you can access it there, or you can go to journeytechnica.com and go down to the bottom of the homepage. You'll see some events. You'll see Christmas giving. Click on that, and it'll show you the sign-up list as well. Um, so if you'd like to participate in that, great. Um, we're also going to be sending out this uh, week another sign-up for Room in the Inn. We're going to be providing a meal in January. Uh, and so we're going to try. Uh, don't know what. What this new variant's going to do, we're going we're gonna to continue to move forward as if it's not going to affect us. Um, if, it ch if that changes, then we will change. But um, we, instead of catering this meal, we are going to return to, you can sign up and bring a portion of the meal. Um, and so that sign-up is not up yet, but it will be up this week. And if you'd like to participate in that, that's a great opportunity um, to participate with Room in the Inn as well. And then, yes. Yes, thank you. If you did sign up, then bring them next Sunday, um, and then we're going to deliver them. So next Sunday. Thank you. I meant to say that. Um, all right. I think that's all the things that I wanted to share with you. And um, I, was, I, I, I was telling a few people, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want them to seem unspiritual, but um, I was telling a few people that I have two sermons today, a long and a short, and all three voted for a short one. Uh, so, uh, but if I do a short one, like you'll miss all the good stuff, right? Um, so <clears throat> I'm going to try to move through this as quickly as possible. I'll also tell you, I was sharing some of this with my dad and he said, you know, I might not share that if I were you. So this is going to be a good time this morning. It might, uh, it might, you know, burn, but, uh, it's not, it's going to be fantastic and awesome. And you're going to be super excited. As I've mentioned before, uh, I, 
there's generally low-lying fruit in any sermon. It doesn't matter who you listen to. Um, there's generally something that's just right out there. You can grab it, take it, it's yours, got it. I can, I can move on to other things in life. And then there's generally those things that can kind of draw you in, that can uh, spark some spark of curiosity within you and make you think, I need to go and look more about that. Um, so there's going to be plenty of that today. And then if you have any questions, uh, you can come up after. The reason we're going to be talking about this, you don't even know what it is yet, but the reason we're going to be talking, oh, I don't know what that was, something just blow up. Oh, our projector, our, oh, okay. Our projector bulb just blew. All right. Not this one. Fortunately, I can get all my slides still up here. So you all who are thinking, man, short sermon. God is telling you short sermon. Wrong projector. Wrong projector. All right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. So the reason we're doing this is because our series is called The Promised King. Now, when we start talking about kings, that's something that people in our neck of the woods don't particularly enjoy, right? We fought a war, after all, to get out from under a king. And when we think of kings, the, when we start talking about Jesus as a king, God as a king, then one of the problems is that most of our experiences with a king has to do with a person who doesn't actually hold much power or control when we think about the royalty of, let's say, England. Uh, so there's a figurehead position, and they do lots of things for their country, but when it comes to ruling, they don't actually rule. And when we go into Scripture and we start talking about kings and kingdoms, we're not talking about a position. We talk about Jesus as king. We're not saying Jesus holds a position. We're not talking about a title, because we can hold titles that, that really have no meaning, right? So every time the Scriptures talk about kings or kingdoms, They're not actually talking about position or title. They're talking about ruling and reigning. It's an active word. So when we talk about God's kingdom, we're talking about God's rule and reign. We're not talking about the fact of, well, he holds this position, and maybe he does and maybe he doesn't rule or reign. But what we also tend to do is we tend to take the whole story and bring it down only to the level of sin in our own lives. But when we read the rest of the story of Scripture, we find that his kingship, his kingdom, is so much bigger than we often give it credit for. And so I want to share some of that with you. And what I want to leave you with by the time you leave today is, what is God's rule? What is this rule that we talk about that God has? Now, next week, we're going to actually enter into the birth story about the coming king. And then the week after, we're going to talk about How do we allow God to rule in our lives? Because there are two aspects to this kingdom or this kingship. It is God's rule that cannot be challenged. And then there's our willingness to allow him to rule in our lives, which he will not force upon us. So we're going to dive in. We're going to look at several different passages. I've got a ton of scripture. So um, if you have questions, write them down and come see me after. We're going to start with Matthew 4.17. Um, what I do, just for those of you who've been around a while, you know this, but what I tend to do when we're talking about things that maybe you didn't study or um, you think, ah, Mark's kind of losing it up there, I give a ton of scripture just to say, hey, this is what the Bible says. And um, so I'm going to have a ton of scripture from the Bible about what I am saying today. Okay? Matthew 4.17 says this, Jesus began preaching. This was immediately after 
So Jesus comes on the scene. He kind of grows up. He's baptized. He goes out to the desert. He's tempted. And then we have this kind of ushering in his ministry. And so the very first thing Jesus says is crucially important. And Jesus doesn't say anything about dying on a cross. Jesus doesn't say anything about dying for your sins. This is the message that Jesus leads with, Matthew 4, 17. Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of scripture is about kingdom, all of it. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 23, it's all about kingdom. And remember, kingdom is not just place, it's not just position, it is active, it is ruling, it is reigning. And what we find is that throughout Scripture, there is a battle between kingdoms that will continue until Jesus returns again. In some ways, that battle ended when Jesus rose from the dead. We'll talk about that as well. John 16 says this, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, if we sit down and we say, okay, what does that mean? Just literally that last part, what does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world? We would probably get a similar answer based on the tradition in which you came up um, in understanding the scriptures. And it would say have something to do with personal sin. And it absolutely is about personal sin. But there's a bigger story behind all of this about the rule and the reign and this war going on between these kingdoms. Now we're going to read it today, but if you read in Revelation, we find that there was a war in heaven. How many have heard about the war in heaven? We've talked about it in here. It's been a while. The war in heaven. Go read Revelation. It's there uh, in which uh, there is a great rebellion in heaven against God's rule and his reign. And they come against God, and they are cast out. And we have, through this rebellion, it sparks a rebellion on the earth in the form of a serpent that would come and tempt Adam and Eve. And from that moment on, they usher in their rebellion and their chaos into the world. The rest of the scriptures are about the battle between bringing people back to the place where God had created them to be back to the place of joy, back to the place of hope and peace, back to the place of loving each other, back to the place where in in a community, it's not that I use you for my benefit. If I have something you need, I give you what you need. If you wrong me, I don't hold it against you. I forgive you. If you come to me and you say, listen, I need your jacket, I'm going to give you my shirt as well. 
And Jesus would go on so far as to say, if you see somebody who is in need and who needs food or needs drink or needs shelter or needs clothing and you give it to them, he goes so far as to say, when you do that, it's as if you're actually giving it to me. This is what Jesus was trying to show us that the kingdom is going to look like. It's a completely different way of living life than the way we typically do in this world. Because typically we're going to have one of two worldviews, the worldview of faith or a worldview of there is no purpose, nihilism. We live, we get what we can out of this world, and we die. Well, I hope I show you before uh, we leave today, that is not what the Scriptures tell us life is supposed to be about. Last week I kind of ended with some questions we'll have to ask if we're going to really explore what this means for God to be king, for Jesus to be king in our lives. The first one was this, what does it mean for God to reign? That's our first question. I am going to cover that one today. We're then going to talk about who or what reigns in our hearts, not today. Why do we push back against allowing God to rule in our hearts and our lives? That'll be two weeks. How do we give God full authority in our thoughts, our actions, and our greatest desires? And then how are we inviting others into the freedom of being ruled by and with God? So those are some of the questions that we have to address over this these next few weeks. Now, God's kingship only matters if we believe that it is true and that it is real. Imaginary kings come in all shapes and sizes. Imaginary kings are not helpful. The only time any of the thing that we read in Scripture matters is if we believe it's actually true, which I do. And you, to some degree, probably do too, which is why you're here. Some of the reasons I believe is because 500 people saw Jesus rise from the dead. I believe because the Scriptures have been preserved from then until now. I believe because there are people that are not Christians who said, yeah, there was this guy named Jesus and he did incredible signs and miracles and he died and he rose again. People like Josephus, who was a Jew, who was a friend of the Romans and had no interest in Christianity whatsoever. Yet he says, yes, this thing happened. Or Tacitus, who was a Roman politician and a philosopher who and a historian who has no interest in Christianity other than to say, yeah, this thing happened. It was amazing. And these people grew. So even historians who were not Christians point back and say, yeah, this Jesus, it was real. And if Jesus is real, then the rest of it has to be real. Because he said it was. You all will come to that place in your heart where you will say, yes, it's real. Or no, it's not. And sometimes we fool ourselves and we say, yeah, it's real, but you know, I kind of do my own thing. That means that we haven't come to a place where he is king within our lives and within our hearts. So where have we been so far in this story? And I know I'm going quickly, and um, you can always watch this if you want to go slower later on iTunes or our website. Where we've been so far is this. God has created us in his image to represent his reign on earth. We read that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God said, let us, interesting, we'll bring that up again in a minute, let us make him in our image. Read that in Genesis 1 and 2. We talked about the humans create our own alternative kingdoms. Um, The very first one that we know of is uh, Babylon, Tower of Babel. Egypt is held up as an alternative kingdom to God, which is why we have this great battle and the Exodus and why 
Uh, Jews still today talk about the Exodus like it just happened yesterday because this story was a battle between kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of earth. And Egypt represented the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of God was uh, Moses and Israel and God's work through the plagues. We create our own kingdoms. We do that today. Sometimes we talk about our kingdom where we live. Our kingdom's the best kingdom, and our kingdom is the, God, the, one, the one kingdom that God blesses. Or someone else will say that about their kingdom. Sometimes we as individuals try to build our own personal kingdoms, and we kind of wrap ourselves around as much luxury as we can so we feel like somehow we, we're on top of things. We're doing well. I mean, we're, we're kind of ruling and reigning our own lives. Sometimes as churches, we've done that. We kind of build our kingdoms as individual churches, which is why I love that we're getting together with other churches, because that's never was God's plan. He always wanted us to be one body with one head, one Lord, one Christ. And, and so we come together and we are able to worship together and serve together and learn together and do all kinds of things together. We create all our alternative kingdoms and these alternative kingdoms never work out. Never work out. And yet what the Bible is for us, the story that it tells over and over and over is a, about a clash of kingdoms God wanting to invade our our alternative kingdoms and bring us into his. It's an invitation in which Scripture tells us he's standing at the door and knocking. He doesn't come in with an army. He comes in with a subtle knock, a quiet whisper to say, I'm here and available for you. We decide whether we'll open the door or not. See, the kingdom of God is completely upside down from the kingdom of the rest of the world. They don't come with great fanfare. They don't come with a great marketing package. They don't come with, you know, having a, a news station to herald how great they are. Instead, they come with someone who's willing to die. Now, this clash of kingdoms is one. I, I grew up in a tradition in which we didn't talk so much about this clash of kingdoms. I grew up in a very um, conservative, and I, I still would consider myself um, conservative if I if you define conservative in the sense of seeking truth. <laughs> I seek truth and I want to hold to truth. And I'm very conservative about that. Um, conservative means a million different things anymore, doesn't it? What does that even mean for somebody, someone? But for me growing up, that meant we didn't talk about the passages of Scripture that were weird or uncomfortable or talked about things that we couldn't control or weren't based on. Well, these are the five things you need to do to make this happen. We tended to focus on those things and and so as I have grown as a believer throughout the years of my life, God has used what I believe is one of the most powerful tools for spiritual growth that anyone can possibly have, and that is curiosity. One of the things Christians are often accused of being are mindless sheep who just do what people tell them to do, and yet that is not the way God talks about us. And yet there are those that will simply believe what they're told to believe and never search and seek and find something that is there. And yet, Scripture tells us over and over again, be curious. Be cur- ask questions. A person who's afraid of questions doesn't actually believe the things they believe. They are sectioning themselves off from things that may contradict their beliefs. As a seeker of truth, one of my really long-held beliefs is this is either true or this is not true. If this is true, there's nothing to be afraid of in exploring and searching and asking questions and having doubts. Doubts are the fuel of curiosity. 
And so as I have grown more and more curious in my own life and in my own faith, there's so much of Scripture that has become more alive as I've gotten older. One of these clash of kingdoms that I want to talk to you about is this thing called the divine council. And it is the belief that there is more going on in heaven than we often want to know. See, monotheism is something that Christians themselves say we practice, but no other world religion claims that Christians are monotheistic. And the reason that is, is two reasons. One, because we talk about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and because the Jews, the Hebrews, and the early Christians themselves did not believe God was the only God. That right there makes some of your neck on the back of your, the hair on the back of your neck bristle. So I see you're going to need some evidence give you some evidence. Psalm 82.1 says this, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. What is that? Psalm 89 goes on and says, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. This is a completely new concept for me. And I would have, I, my first time I heard it, I was like, that is completely false and wrong and craziness. And that's a, that's a heretic talking. And I went back through the Old Testament for the things that I would gloss over and say, yeah, that's some cultural thing that we don't understand. I began to piece together pieces of this puzzle. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because this does not diminish God. This makes God even greater, more powerful. His reign and his rule more significant than simply what he does in our life, which is significant. But he's doing something way bigger than that, too. I actually had one of our uh, church attenders call me um, a few months ago. And say and ask me, hey, I've been reading in Job. <laughs> well, you know, sorry, Mark's not here. You know, Job's one of those passages of scripture that you read and you're like, let's not, can we, let's just not, let's just not talk about Job. Job is considered to be the oldest book that we have in scripture, older than Genesis. Now, you think, well, how is that possible? Because Genesis was about the creation, because Moses wrote. What came to be known as Genesis and Job was thought to have been written almost a thousand years before Moses. So Job is literally the oldest text we have in the Scripture. Some think that the story of Job is just allegory. Others think that Job happened sometime around the patriarchs and others that Job happened sometime around the flood. Not likely before the flood, or he would have found favor just as Noah did, but sometime earlier before the Exodus story, before the calling of Abraham, or maybe around the calling of Abraham. We don't know. This is how the sixth verse of Job 1 begins. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And this was their question. Who are the sons of God? And that why was Satan allowed to come into the heavenly presence of God? I thought he was cast out. Now there are a million places we can go to talk about the ancient Hebrew understanding of Job 1.6. 
One being that Satan was never an individual. Satan was always anyone who was in rebellion towards God or anything. That's evidenced by Peter when Jesus says, I've got to die and then I'm going to rise again on the third day. And Jesus says, oh no, you're not. And what does Jesus call Peter? Satan. Satan was never an individual. Satan was always an act. It was an attitude. It was a rebellion against God. And so any one of us in any moment could be Satan, right? I don't mess with you. I don't mess with you. Genesis 1.26, I hear the the fidgeting. There's some fidgeting going on in the room. Genesis 1.26 says when God is going to create us, let's make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds and the heavens. Uh, birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Our assumption has been the hour image was the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but is it possible that it was this divine heavenly council that we know so little about? Deuteronomy 10.17 is another interesting passage. This is where uh, Moses is talking about God's um, overcoming Egypt. And it says, for the Lord your God is God of gods. What does that mean? Lord of lords. We can understand that. He's probably talking about earthly lords, right? That's how we read that. The great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Later in Deuteronomy 32, 8, it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of of Israel. Your version may say Israel. And all versions of Scripture said the nations were divided according to the sons of Israel up until about the 80s. In the 80s, we found this incredible text in Qumran, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was an earlier translation of the original languages of this verse, and it did not translate Israel. If you're not familiar with this verse or this story, this is the story of the Tower of Babel. This happened before... Abraham's call. This happened before Isaac. This happened before Jacob. This happened before Israel. How could he possibly be talking about dividing the nations at the Tower of Babel according to the sons of Israel because the sons of Israel didn't exist yet? And yet the older language found in Qumran was translated not the sons of Israel but the sons of God. Now, if we had fun, and we ought to do a series sometime just about weird things in the Bible, and we've done that in the past, uh, we could bring up the Nephilim, which is, we're not even going to bring it up in here, because quite honestly, the Nephilim is a very difficult thing to comprehend. And yet the Nephilim are said to have been the offspring of the gods and humans. But he didn't talk about them like a fable. They talked about them like real people, and they became the rulers and the kings. We come to all kinds of Ways of trying to understand what that means. I don't fully understand what the Nephilim are. Honestly, it's not a burning desire for me to fully understand what they are. But this is what he says. Your God is, your Lord is God of gods. Deuteronomy 32.8. What ends up happening when we read the rest of the story as we end up finding that this is a battle between the kingdoms. This is a, a battle. So at the Tower of Babel, we have this place where God has, do you remember what our command was? What were we to do originally when God created us? We were really to do two things. Do you remember what they were? First one was 
multiply and fill the earth. And the second was subdue it. And so, in the ancient worldview, the idea of having children was super important. It wasn't just super important, it was a way of living life. They didn't live life the way we live life. I've got two kids in college, they're going to graduate, they're going to go um, and they're going to get their degrees, and they're going to go get a job, and they're going to move out, and they're going to start their own family unit, and um, I'm going to be super excited because I'm not going to be paying for them anymore, right? That's what we all look forward to when our kids grow up. But that's not how things worked in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, your kids were your bounty. Your kids were your future. Your kids were your ability to grow and to develop wealth. Scripture also talks about them being arrows in your quiver, but you can imagine this, if me and, let's say, Bob, I like to talk about Bob. I don't, if anybody's here by the name of Bob, Bob is just somebody I like to make up. He, I don't see him. He's not a real friend, if some of you are already worried about me. But let's just say Bob and I both, we decide we're going to farm, because that's what they did. I can handle 10 cows. Bob can handle 10 cows. A single person can only handle 10 cows. And so now I've got my 10 cows, and Bob has his 10 cows, but I decide to have a kid. Eventually, now I can have 20 cows, right? Bob decides, I don't want to have kids. They're just too much trouble. They're loud. They're messy. And, you know, just I don't need that mess. Bob always only has 10 kids. I mean 10 kids, 10 cows. Let's say I have five more kids. Now there's six of us. Now we have 60 cows. I'm six times wealthier than Bob is. See, family was huge back then. It wasn't just that oh, we want to have kids. We want to have fun. We want to have a good Christmas. Like you helped each other survive. You helped each other grow. Abram, when he was called, had a large family. He was wealthy. Family was crucially important. And so when we read this story and we follow this story, the story goes, I've created you and now I want you to multiply and I want you to scatter and fill the earth. And people said, no. <laughs> and the most obvious place that we read that in the Old Testament is the Tower of Babel when they said this, we are going to come and build a tower where the gods have to come to us and we will not scatter, we will gather together. God comes and He says, Deuteronomy 32.8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Jewish tradition, I, stay with me, stay with me. Jewish tradition was that there were originally 70 nations. And we get that from Genesis um, 11, I believe, which uh, Genesis uh, 10, not 11. There were initially, and there are 70 grandsons of Noah mentioned in Genesis 10. If you, if, if you speak to someone who's, who's fluent in in Jewish history, they'll tell you their original nations after the Tower of Babel were 70 based on the 70 grandsons of Noah. But they actually said it, it became 72. There were two more nations that were added to those 70. Israel and Edom. You know about Israel. Israel is the, the, the lineage and ancestry of Jacob who would then become the line of David, the line of Jesus. Jacob had a brother, his name was Esau, and Esau's descendants would become Edom, also coming through Abraham, and those two nations became the 72 nations that were the original founding nations of the world, according to the Scripture. 
really fascinating. After these 72 nations go up, he comes to a man named Abram and he says, I'm going to raise up for myself a people. And these people are going to follow me. And these people I'm going to bless. And these people I'm going to redeem the rest of the world. You will be my people and I will be your God. And this we find throughout Scripture, the difference between monotheism based on our belief that there is only God and the idea of monotheists. Ancient Jews would have said they were monotheists as well, but they understood it was not that there were not other heavenly beings. It was the fact that there were none like Yahweh. He was the supreme. He was the creator. No one could challenge Yahweh. And he said, I'm going to show the rest of the world this. This is our point for today. What God is doing in the world is so much bigger than just our own personal sins, which are significant in and of themselves. What God is doing is he's reconciling the entire world to his rule and his reign that has been separated in rebellion to him from the garden itself. What I've learned in my study as I continue to dive, I call my friends, like, have you heard of this stuff? Like, uh, some of them have. Some are like, oh yeah, man. You never heard of that stuff? You never learned this stuff. A whole bunch of them. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. That's crazy. I wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> so here I am bringing it up. I'm crazy. I am crazy. This is what God says to Moses in Exodus 20. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me is the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What's interesting is, The first two commandments are all about this heavenly host, as it's sometimes called in other places. You shall have no other gods before me. What's he talking about? Like figuratively, right? Yet what we find is when we do, again, study the ancient Hebrew understanding of what is going on in this world around us, that is not how they viewed it. That's how we viewed it. You might wonder, well, how did, when did we stop learning these things? This was something that every first century Christian knew, by the way. Every first century Christian knew this stuff. When did we stop? We stopped right around the time of the councils. And if you know anything about church history, we stopped when Constantine decided it was advantageous to use Christians to build a kingdom. Many things changed with Constantine. We've talked about that before. We started talking about Constantine back around the Protestant Reformation and that he has always been seen as a good thing in the church, but he really did some terrible things to the church. What he did good was he stopped the feeding of Christians by the lions. That's a good thing, right? One of the reasons you and I aren't constantly being served up in the arena to be eaten up by a lion is because of Constantine. Thank you, Constantine. What he also did was he mixed political kingdom building with Christianity and forever, for many, altered what the kingdom was really all about. 
Yet Jesus shows us over and over again with his words what his kingdom is about. God responds to this alternative kingdom building that we do, whether it be Babylon, whether it be Egypt, whether it be our own lives, whether it be our own personal kingdoms, whether it be our church's kingdoms. He responds by entering into those. He entered in through Israel, and yet most of the Old Testament of Israel, I find both encouraging and discouraging at the same time. I find encouraging because they screwed up time and time again, and God would judge them, and then God would offer them to come back, and he would heal them, and he does. Ultimately promising to them a king that would deliver them for good, which is what our series is about. He says, I'm going to liberate you from the reigning power of the day, which which was Egypt. And he invites them again to rule and to reign with them. They decide he's not enough. And last week we talked about the fact, we don't want you to be our king. We want a king like everybody else has because you just want us to love everybody and they want to overtake us with their armies. And so we want a king that will give us an army. So we talked about Solomon. And we read, you remember the two passages? We, we, We read one, what would a good king be that Moses shared? This is what a good king would be. And then we read Samuel's warning. But if you ask for a king now, this is what the king will do. He will enslave you. He will build an army. He will take your children and he will build up his own personal kingdom. And they say, yes, that's what I want. That's what all the other nations that keep raiding us and overtaking us have. And he said, if you'll just trust me, I will take care of you. It's not enough. In our own king, and it didn't work out well. Of the 42 kings we read of in the Old Testament, only eight of them are semi-okay. And the ones that we think are the best of all of them was an adulterer and a murderer or enslaved his own people to build his own kingdom. They weren't great kings. They weren't as terrible as some of the other kings. They weren't great kings either. Couldn't match what God wanted to do for them. Genesis 7, 8 says, I will give to you and to your offspring after the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for everlasting position and I, possession, and I will be their God. This is where Israel starts. This is God's nation among the nations that have been divided up according to the sons of God. And Jesus comes, and when he announces his message, his ministry. What is everything I'm going to tell you for the rest of my time here before I die and then rise from the dead and go to the cross? He says, I am here to announce that the kingdom of God is here. Not heaven, although we have some places where we interpret the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is here. Everything else Jesus does is about that. Then we find some interesting symmetry between the New and the Old Testaments. As Jesus comes and He announces that the kingdom of God is now here in Himself, He has brought the kingdom with Him. He becomes for us the fulfillment of the law so that we could know what we were supposed to look like to begin with before the fall. Not equal with God, but ruling and reigning with Him. Just as He said, those two things we're supposed to do. Multiply, fill the earth, and so do it, manage it, rule and reign it with God. Not be equal with God. Please don't hear anything that I'm saying. Is there's any 
thing or anyone equal with God. There is not. Then the rest of Scripture is about this battle between the nations. And if you're a student at all of the Old Testament, you've read lots of stuff about the nations, right? He talks all the time about the nations, the nations, the nations, because this is all about kingdom. Jesus does something interesting. He calls 12 inner disciples. That, that, that group that's going to follow him, that group that he's going to pour into representing the 12 tribes of Israel, his people. That he was going to make them a nation among the nations to bring his kingdom through them. 12 disciples representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Told you in Genesis 10, we find that there were 70 grandsons of Noah. Early Jewish uh, scholars tell us they believe there were 72 original nations of the world. Those 70 grandsons of Noah represented the original 70 nations. And then two more, Israel and Edom from Jacob and Esau. In John 12, what looks like an arbitrary number. Well, not John 12. John 12 says... Now was the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. We have this nation language. It's throughout the Scriptures. And then we find that, Genesis, uh, that Jesus sends two representatives to every one of those original nations. You think, Mark, what are you talking about? There are 72 original nations according to Jewish historians. Luke 10, 1-3 says, After the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of Him, two by two, in every town and place where He Himself was about to go, He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. It's not a coincidence. He sends two disciples to every nation of the earth, which later he's going to tell us to do the same thing. Go therefore into all the earth and tell them of me. But he does this symbolically with his original disciples. You think, well, that he didn't, he didn't have 144 disciples. Thousands. We sometimes mistake his 12 as his only disciples. But he had large numbers of disciples and followers. At one point, John sends all his followers to follow Jesus too. But 72 of them he sends out. Symbolically to say this message is now going out into all the earth. And this is what we are to spend the rest of our lives. We'll talk about that in three weeks. This is what we're supposed to spend our lives doing. All right. Let me get back to some more comfortable things. God's rule. I need to wrap this up. Jesus' death and resurrection secured His reign over all the earth. Now this is completely opposite of the way we do everything else for every other king. Because kings generally are held up, protected. They've got bodyguards. We don't let any harm come to them. Jesus secured His reign by dying on the cross. The upside-down kingdom of God. 
First Corinthians 15 says, For as a man came as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Be each in his own order. Christ first. The first fruits, those who immediately began following him. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, everyone else who claims him as their king. Then, verse 24 says, comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we would, we tend, and I tend to read these other difficult passages and think the nations are just literally the nations. Other kings, queens, rulers. But Paul himself said, but we wrestle not against who? Flesh and blood. Not each other. We wrestle against principalities, powers, rulers of the air. I don't know where you are right now. Some of you are concerned about me. Some of you are super excited because something in this resonates with you and you say, yes, this is the story that I've been reading. Jesus says, "I my death overcomes the world. How does Jesus become king? How do I wrap this up? Number one, he comes and he announces the kingdom is here through him. I, the kingdom of God is here through me, Jesus says. The Pharisees really hated that. So much so, they, they killed him for it. He confronts evil, but when he confronts evil, he doesn't confront it with a sword. He doesn't confront it and come up and knock everybody and take them out and say, look at all the bad people. We need to get some snipers up in here and take out all the bad people. He walks up and he finds the least of these, the poor, the oppressed, blind, the hurting. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. And he does all the things opposite of what everyone thinks that the kingdom of God is about. He stands by a woman who has committed adultery and according to the law should be stoned. And they say, who or what should we do with this woman? And he says, without doing away with the law, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Upside down kingdom. He's crowned king by his trial in front of the other world power at the time, which was Rome, and dying for our sins and ultimately coming back from the dead, demonstrating his power over sin and death. We submit to his reign as we follow his teachings. We'll talk about in a couple of weeks. We intervene for this broken world. Scriptures tell us that Jesus' reign destroys the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. <laughs> For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Isaiah 25, 
promise was made about this coming king, this promised king who was going to do away with all of the nations. There was, he was going to be the one to finally rule everything. This new heaven and new earth that he will finally usher in in his second coming. This is what Isaiah says about it. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I want to end with how we ended last week. This rain that God has, this rain that God's offering is a gentle rain. It is not to shame us. It is not to beat us down. It is not to exacerbate us. It is not to say, I just want you to do this because I just want you to do it. I mean, I don't, it doesn't really matter to me if it's right or wrong. I just, I just want to see you do what I tell you to do. Some people really do believe that's what God does. But Jesus, when talking about what will it look like if this rain that now literally covers all of creation, not just our own individual lives, but all of creation, this new heaven and new earth is, is the final act in this big battle between all the kingdoms, where the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that's left. Jesus says, if you want me to reign within your life and if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to look like. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I was talking with Don last week, and whenever we find this imagery of yoke, it, it absolutely is the image of a Something that yokes two to beasts of burden together to pull up whatever, uh, a plow or whatever. It's absolutely that. But, but, it, but in Old Testament and New Testament rabbinic teaching, a yoke was a rabbi's teachings. That's what the yoke was. Like when you agreed to follow a rabbi, he would say, here's my yoke. And that were all his teachings. And so literally what Jesus is saying is, come to me all who, are labor, who labor and are heavy laden. You've been put a teaching on you that you cannot possibly live out. But I will give you rest. Take my teachings upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my teachings are easy and my burden is light. I've been struggling with what we're going to do after the first of the year. What are we going to talk about? So, in, in general, uh, Christians have believed that the yoke of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. It is his longest, most in-depth teaching about what it looks like to live in this kingdom. 
And we've covered the Beatitudes, which is the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, but there's actually there's a ton of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. I think, we're, I think after the first year, we're just going to verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount, however long it takes, however long it takes us to get through it. We're just going to go through the yoke of Jesus. Maybe that's what we'll call it. Maybe we'll call it the yoke of Jesus instead of the Sermon on the Mount. All right. I promise you I'm of sound mind and body. Some of these ideas are weird, aren't they? The reason I read so I read so much scripture today is I want you to see this is the Bible. This is the Bible that somewhere along the line we stopped reading it all. And instead we chose to zoom in on the things that were helpful. Usually zoom in on the things that said, now go do this and not that. Because that's easy for us. Give me my list. What are the things I can do? What are the things I can't do? And which of the things I can't do are like real deal breakers? And which are the ones that like I could get away with? I mean, if I still did them, like you're not kicking me out of heaven. I mean, that's honestly how many people approach the Scriptures. But again, I believe that one of the, the core things that leads to growth is curiosity. Be curious. Ask questions. I'm open for you to come and ask me questions about any of this as well. All right? We're going to do one more song and take communion. Um, I'm going to pray with you. You can come up. And we have, again, our lovely um, um, mass-manufactured communion things. Um, we're still not doing intinction quite yet. We're going to wait. Um, the trays in the middle are gluten-free. If you need gluten-free, um, all the rest are not. And um, we're going to sing this song. While we're doing that, come grab your juice and your bread, and then we'll take communion. We remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because that is what gave him his kingship over all the earth. We remember he is our king. There's none like him. There are none greater than him. He is our king. Father, your word is just layered full of truth after truth after truth that is just, I'm not sure anyone can fully comprehend all that is there. But you've been patient with us. You've sought us out. You've loved us. You've worked in our lives. Father, I pray that you would pray that you would move among us. You would stoke our curiosity, our imagination. I, I pray that you would show us through your word the depths of your greatness, the depths of this heavenly realm, and the depths of what you're doing. Not just that we can see, but even beyond what we can possibly see. Like so many before us, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Return. Finish this thing that you have started. Let us experience this new heaven and new earth that you've talked about. Father, we take this bread in this cup. We do this knowing that we are nothing without you. We can't love anyone without knowing that you've loved us. Father, we do love you. Thank you for the gift of your Son on the cross for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.